Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Titus, chapter 3. We're going to be looking in verses 9 through 15. We're going to wrap up this book this morning. <clears throat> next Sunday, I'll start bringing a few uh, Christmas messages over the next several weeks throughout the month of December. So, <clears throat> I still don't know what those are yet, so I would love to give you the answer, but God hasn't necessarily made that clear yet. But we will wrap up this book, and as we've been going through 1 Timothy and Titus, and we will go through 2 Timothy starting in the new year, we're looking at how a church should function, how a church should act, how a church should behave, right down to how each of us should behave, and, uh, and then also how that affects others. And so biblical cooperation is good ministry, and that's what we're going to see from this closing section of Paul's letter to Titus on the island of Crete. So let, follow along as I read this. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Paul writes, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I sent Artemis, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be fruitful, unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for the letters Paul writes to pastors and to churches that gives such clear, concise, and pointed instruction. Because the world is always trying to add to, take away from, divide the truth, trying to separate it and nuance it to the point of where we just sometimes get lost. But you have given us clear biblical guidance. May we be faithful to your word. May we be faithful to obeying it. Speak to our hearts this morning, Father, as we learn about your desire for your churches to cooperate. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, in, in TV and movies, a lot of times there will be a scene where a guy is, a person is reading a letter to somebody, from somebody, and they're reading it out loud, and they get down toward the end, right before the closing, and they go, yada, yada, blah, 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 or et cetera, et cetera. They don't read the last part out loud for some reason. Um, I don't know if that's a, a script technique to shorten the script and shorten the film, but we need to never, ever, ever approach God's word that way. Even the closings, I know most of your Bibles probably say final instructions in closing, and you just kind of read right through that and don't even think about what it implies. But every word in your Bible is the inerrant, clearly given word of God, breathed out by God. So even these closings, <clears throat> even the grace be with you all is from God's mouth. So <clears throat> as with most of Paul's letters, they end with some encouraging words, they also end with some instructive words to sum up what he's kind of been talking about the whole letter. And these words are not just cursory, like I said. They are the inerrant words of God. So in this particular section, verses 9 through 15, 
In Paul's final words to Titus and the churches on the island of Crete, he says they must work together. They must work together against division and for ongoing ministry. The churches there on that island, there were many cities in that church, on that island, and I know you look at it on a map and it's like, it doesn't look very big, but there were many cities, there were many churches, and Titus was kind of the, the head of all of them in the sense of helping them and guiding them. And Paul is telling them, you must work together for the good things and the bad things, for division against it and for good ministry. So for us today, we want to get out of this, that churches need to remain, to remain for us to remain spiritually healthy, for us to remain spiritually viable in this world we live in, and spiritually focused, we must cooperate biblically. Cooperate biblically with other churches in the good times and the bad. And that's what Paul's got here in this passage to, to help them through these difficulties. So what does this cooperation look like on the island of Crete? But also, what does it look like here? That's kind of the question we want to answer this morning. How does that play out here? How does cooperation play out? Well, there are two parts in this. There are two parts in church-wide cooperations. You've got to cooperate to solve the problems, and you've got to cooperate to do the ministry. Those are two separate entities, and Paul makes it clear here in verses 9 through 15. First of all, we need to cooperate to deal with the factions. Factions are, now I'm not saying fractions in case your hearing is off, factions, divisions. We need to cooperate to deal with them. Let me reread verses 9 through 11 for you. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person because after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. These are, like I said, the final instructions. And if you go back to chapter 1 of Titus, verses 10 through 16, Paul has already talked about all the divisive topics and divisive attitudes and the divisive actions that have been going on in the churches in the island of Crete. But the, what's interesting is that that list and that discussion in, in chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, that's in almost every letter Paul writes. There is someone always trying to water down the truth, destroy the truth, divide the truth, compromise the truth but right here in Crete he's telling them what to do about it first of all in verse 9 he says avoid it go around it get away from it those people who cause these problems he wants you to just avoid it like you avoid a pothole in the road just don't even don't even slow down and pay any attention to it go around it and these are the things he wants them to avoid foolish debates debates these were foolish because they weren't edifying the church. They weren't helpful in any way. They were causing problems. They weren't truthful. They weren't honest. See, when we argue to just inflate our egos or to boast of knowledge we have gained or, or to aggravate people, sometimes that happens. We, we argue to aggravate. Um, I used to do it with my brother and my sister. We aggravate people. It's foolishness in God's eyes when it comes to his church and cooperating for the ministry of the gospel. It's foolishness. So avoid foolish debates. He also says to avoid genealogies. Now, I don't know if you know what genealogies they're talking about. Really don't ever, Paul never really specifies. But I know that from some extra biblical information, there were a lot of Jews out there and a lot of other people trying to say, because I am a, a descendant of this, I get to do this. They just, it was just craziness. It was like they were trying to infuse genealogies into what Jesus had taught. And to make themselves important. There is only one genealogy that matters. 
the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You go to Matthew chapter 1, you go to Luke chapter 3, you see the genealogy of Jesus Christ. All the way from Adam to Jesus. That's the only genealogy that matters because God made promises. He promised Abraham. He actually promised Adam and Eve that he would send somebody to crush the head of Satan in Genesis 3.15. But he, sent, he made a promise to Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. And you, your seed will come to save those nations. And he promised David that there will always be someone sitting on the throne. So that is the only genealogy that matters. They were arguing over silly genealogies. They were having quarrels and disputes over the Mosaic law. And I know sometimes we get into those discussions too. You go back to the, ver the, the books of Num uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You see all kinds of rules. They were rules for keeping the camp clean. They were also rules for keeping the people holy. Those rules are abolished when it comes to us now because Jesus took care of all of that. You want to know how that happens? Go read the book of Hebrews. He, he's pretty explanatory about that. But they're arguing about it. They're arguing about the Mosaic law, trying to infuse something else into salvation except Jesus. That's the problem. Sacrifices, which foods to eat, what days to observe, you know, what ceremony to perform. God declares that all of this is unprofitable and worthless. I mean, I don't, if God says it's unprofitable and worthless, I, I'm going to probably agree with him. That's pretty sums it up pretty good. It's just unhealthy, and it's empty of any value. So avoid it. Avoid it. And then he says in verse 10 what to do with the person that's doing these things. He says reject them who seek to divide over such matters. <clears throat> Obviously, they need to be warned. Jesus gives us clear instructions in Matthew 18 on how we discipline and structure and, and filter out these kind of things, but warn them twice. And if they continue and persist, then Paul says reject them. That basically means disfellowship with them. Reject them as an unhealthy believer that needs to repent, that needs to correct their thinking. <clears throat> Refuse them to have positions in the church that might have that kind of influence. Those are things that you can do. Sometimes you may need to treat them as if they're lost, if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, if they've not been born again. You might need to treat them that way. Well, that doesn't mean hatefully, okay? That means love them. Didn't Jesus say that? Love your enemies? We're supposed to reach out to the lost. So love them and bring them the message of the gospel. Help them to understand that maybe they just didn't know. Help them to understand that there's repentance and forgiveness in the gospel. <clears throat> and if a church doesn't cooperate on these decisions, if a church doesn't work together, factions do form. Factions and people start taking sides. And, you know, we have an aisle down the middle of this church. That's not because we have people on both sides of the aisle, as they say in Congress. We do not want that. That is not a healthy church. Churches must cooperate because it's always human nature. <clears throat> it's human nature to pick a side. I mean, I'm, I, I watch football games with my, my grandchildren. And the first question out of one of them's mouth is, who are you pulling for, Colonel? Who are you pulling for, Granddad? I, sometimes I'm just watching football because I like football. Sometimes I'm pulling for the guy, that's, the team that's losing because I like to see underdogs come back, but it just makes for good football. But that's, that's not what should happen in church. That's not what should happen in church. Church's life should be based totally on God's word, and we must be in agreement for that. And then Paul points out in verse 11 the spiritual condition of this person. First of all, they've wandered away from truth. They've wandered away from healthy gospel teachings. Another version translation says warped. They're warped. <laughs> they just aren't 
agreeing with what Jesus taught. The second thing that's going on in their life is they are intentionally creating division. And intentionally creating division is wrong. In Jude chapter 1 verse 19, he says, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Division is, is wrong in the church. And usually it's lost people that's trying to divide a church body. I mean, division makes a lot of lists of sins in the New Testament. Galatians 5.20, it's in there. There's plenty of other ones. Dividing a church in any reason is never a good thing. And then the third thing he says is going on in their life is that their refusal to repent, to seek reconciliation, to cease the arguments, it condemns them. Their words are condemning themselves. They're testifying that they are in error. And most of the time, that's how you really recognize someone that's just there to create division. A body of believers must deal with divisive issues. We must. We must try to correct them, adjust for them, work them out. And we must deal with those who are seeking to harm the body of Christ in these ways. And Paul warns the church they must unite to protect the integrity and to protect the unity of the church. It's very important to Christ that we be unified. Paul even pleads this case in many places. This isn't the only place Paul is telling them to do that. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, which is finishing up that letter to the, book, to the church in Rome, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. So he's saying the same thing he said in verse 9. Avoid them. Reject them. Get away from them. You ever wonder why the two subjects to avoid at a family gathering or a polite company is religion and politics? You ever wonder why? It divides instantly. You, you get at least two sides, but a lot of times, as I've observed it, there's at least a third side and a fourth side. The third side is the silent people who are sitting in the corner just watching the whole melee go on. And then the fourth people are the ones that leave the room. I wonder if Granny needs help with the turkey. You know, they, they just get out of it. Probably they're the smart ones too. But divisions must be dealt with quickly and carefully to avoid detrimental effects in our church. That's, that's what has to happen. I've seen it do a lot of damage in families over those two topics. But we're talking about the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God that saves souls. That's more important than any political party or any religion that people might be wanting to promote. Cooperation comes with, with doctrinal clarity. And that's something I, I want to, hopefully in the six years I've been here, stress. Doctrinal clarity. We need to make sure it's based on God's word. If it's not based on good, wholesome, biblical interpretations, it's an error or it's an opinion. It may need to be adjusted. Cooperation comes with doctrinal clarity. And in the Southern Baptist Convention, in the Southern Baptist churches, which we are, um, we use what's called the Baptist Faith and Message, 2000. It was revised in the year 2000. Actually, it was revised last year for a minor correction. Um, so now I guess the revision date's 2022. Anyway, the Baptist Faith and Message distills down out of Scripture what the Southern Baptist Convention believes primarily is our doctrines. There's a lot of things it doesn't cover, a lot of things, but it covers some of the main things that we as Baptists, Southern Baptists hold to. And we do that so people can know. So I teach it in our new member candidate class. 
I teach them exactly what we as a Southern Baptist believe about God's word, about the Bible, about anything that has to do with God. I want them to know what they're getting into. That's why I teach it. I don't want them to be deluded and confused and divided over it. I want them to know exactly what we hold to. It's important. It's important. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, is it okay? isn't it okay to have some debates and, and profitable discussions? Absolutely. We can do that. We can have, but, but it has to have a healthy intention. See, it has to have an edifying product at the end. You have to be both working toward a common, shared, mutual understanding. That's the whole point of it. I mean, I can bring up a topic like the end of time and, and the rapture and all that stuff. And that's, there's a lot of views out there. There's a two-hour video on YouTube of, of three smart guys that I trust from three different positions arguing for two hours. They never convince each other that the other one is wrong. And they walk away friends. They walk away brothers in, in Christ. That's the way it's got to be handled. That's the kind of debates we have to have. Those discussions may come to a agree to disagree end. It may have some kind of nuanced quality at the end of, of the decision, but they leave as family. They always part as brothers and, and sisters in Christ. They don't leave as enemies. But if, if the topics are compromising God's word, if the topics are dividing primary doctrines of scripture, it's got to receive some attention, specific attention. <clears throat> Excuse me. What's primary doctrines, you may ask? Well, I'm going to Obviously, the first one is that salvation is only by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only. There is no other way. There is no other religion out there that offers that. And we, I can talk for hours on that. <clears throat> so salvation, how we, how we are saved, how we are made right with a holy, righteous God. Also, God's attributes. People who want to talk about God not being capable of things or not doing things or, or not seeing things, they're lying. They're wrong. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We got a hold of that. It is a, a biblical doctrine. The inerrancy of God's word. This is really foundational. Matter of fact, all systematic theology textbooks start off with God's word because this is how we know what we know and believe what we believe. And we got to understand and believe the fact that it is inerrant. It is breathed out by God in the original languages that it was written in. We've got to hold to that. That ch the church is Christ's establishment for ministry of the gospel on this planet. He left it here. There's a lot of parachurch organizations out there. That's great. They're helpful. But the church needs to be focused on what God, Jesus left us here for. The deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of the Holy Spirit. Those are things we won't argue over. Sin. Hell. Heaven. Those are primary doctrines that are real. Because without them... Nothing else that's primary makes sense. Now, we make, I maybe can include some others, but I'm not going to try to give you an exhaustive list. But the point is, is that healthy discussion can happen, but debating to cause trouble is never good. Okay? I, I, I love talking theology. I love talking about my Bible. I love talking about my Savior. But when you start trying to divide or rule out some of the things that are taught in God's Word, that's where we have to kind of park company on we have to check this too. The heart, the motives and the heart conditions, we need to discern them very carefully of people that are maybe bringing up a topic. You know, 
as, as one pastor told me, there's a difference between questions and questioning. And we need to understand that from a motive standpoint. But we need to be patient. There's no reason to be paranoid and there's no reason to be aggressive. God will reveal in time and with the patient exercise of the process of Matthew 18 of church discipline, we can hopefully discover the problem and and solve it. But we must continually seek the purity of our faith. Cooperating together on that is a must to ensure that we don't harm each other, okay? It's not about winning the argument. It really isn't. I mean, right is right and wrong is wrong, but it's not about just winning the argument. It's about restoration, reconciliation. It's about our relationships to one another, the horizontal relationships that Jesus demonstrated so vividly how important those are to him. We don't conduct witch hunts here. We don't worry about, you know, that kind of stuff. We just want to be careful and patient. So we need to cooperate to work out the bad things. Cooperating to handle the bad times, that also helps us, as point number two says, to cooperate for the good times and a lot more. Cooperate to minister the gospel. Verses 12 through 15. Let me read that again to you. When I send, when I send Ar- Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. There's some good opportunities right here in this passage to see cooperation among the, the local first century church, the very first church, as, it's, as it has kind of a global impact. Remember, this is before North America was even discovered, okay? <laughs> so it was a global effect there. I mean, there, we're talking Italy, Greece, Asia, Palestine, Africa. I mean, we got all kinds of nations or, or geographical people groups, at least, worked on here. So first of all, Paul's, he's going to send someone to relieve Titus. Evidently, Titus had been there a while, so he's going to send Artemis or Tychicus. And this is a good thing. I'm sure Titus probably needed a break, especially if he's dealing with all the churches on the island of Crete. So he's going to send one of those. Now, we don't even know who Artemis is. There's no other biblical account of Artemis. Now, if you look it up and and you Google it, Wikipedia, I think he's a a Catholic bishop of uh, the church at Lystra. But we don't have any proof of that here. Maybe he was. Um, But anyway, one thing we do know, Paul trusted him. Paul trusted him as an elder. Paul trusted him as a guy who could take over the reins for Titus over all the churches on the island of Crete. And he would send him, actually in the end, he does wind up sending Artemis. Because in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, we find out that Tychicus went to Ephesus. And Tychicus was from Ephesus, or had been to Ephesus several times already. So Artemis went to Crete. We know that by 2 Timothy 4. Tychicus, though, is well known. He's mentioned many times in Scripture as a helper for Paul, starting with Acts chapter 20. He was helping and in, 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 he carried the gospel message. He carried letters for Paul to different churches. And uh, he went to Ephesus a couple times and to Colossae to take that, the book of Colossians there. 
He was from Asia, which was actually what today would be Turkey, uh, that area of Asia. But Paul tells Titus to prepare the churches so one of these will take over and Titus can get a reprieve. He can get a sabbatical, if you will. Um, Paul has invited him to come winter with him in Nicopolis. Anybody know where Nicopolis is? It's really hard to figure out which Nicopolis he's talking about because they named a bunch of cities Nicopolis. But it is believed that this Nicopolis is on the west coast of Greece, kind of halfway down the harbor. And they believe Paul was up in Philippi. So going south for the winter, probably a good idea. Uh, I know a lot of us right now would like to do that probably. So he wants to spend time with Titus. Hear what Titus has done. Hear what he's going through. Here's what his struggles. And as Paul would normally do, give him some more instructions. So um, he gets to spend some one-on-one time, in a sense, with Paul. See, cooperation makes way for these kind of things to happen. Sabbaticals and rests, people helping and taking over, people getting to learn. It's a win-win all around for the church. Now we come to Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. And we know nothing about Zenos the lawyer. We believe he was a lawyer of Roman law. But we don't know that for a fact. But he and Apollos are coming probably to bring the letter we're reading, Titus. They probably brought that letter to them. And then Paul says, help them go on their journey. So he's probably sending them somewhere else with another letter to somebody else. Who knows? Crete was kind of in a nice strategic spot in the Mediterranean Sea. Wasn't too far to the west. Wasn't too far to the east. It was right in a strategic spot. And I'm sure... Because ships used wind back then, not power. There was a lot of ships that stopped there. So probably a good place to have someone that can pass someone on and help someone to go on. Apollos we know very well. He was in Ephesus. He was in Corinth. He was a a Jew from Alexandria. He taught the scriptures well. He was very knowledgeable. And Paul was sending them to carry the message, this letter particularly. And he wants Titus to rally all the churches on the island of Crete to help them along to help them get there, wherever the next stop was, to give them their full support. So Paul uses these two events, these four guys coming at some point, or these four, three or four guys coming, he uses this as an object lesson for the churches on Crete. Paul's always quick to take advantage of something going on as an object lesson for the gospel. Verse 14 Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, why is that verse there? Why isn't it further up in the letter somewhere? Because of those two events that are coming to Crete. Tychicus or Artemis, Apollos and Zenos, they're coming through, help them on their way, et cetera, et cetera. So devote themselves to learning to do good works in meeting urgent needs. It was a perfect opportunity. Paul to put that in there. Doing good enhances cooperation. That's the point Paul's making there. Devoting themselves to learning how to do good works. They were going to have to give up something for Apollos and Zenos to continue on their journey. And meeting these needs of spiritual and material matters keeps the focus on the mission of God. Anytime Paul's sending someone through someplace, they're on a mission for God, in a sense. They are on a gospel mission. So, So the debates, the quarrels, the disputes, they're all unfruitful. God makes that very clear. Factions, divisions, dissensions, they're unprofitable. And many churches today are dead because of those kind of things. Silly things. But Paul calls them to keep their focus on the global mission of the gospel. Yes, global. Like I said, Crete was a very strategic spot. 
And lots of the gospel carriers were going to pass through there. And then Paul finishes out his closing with a customary greeting that he gives. I'm not going to say yada, yada, or et cetera, et cetera. Look at this, this closing. It has love, faith, and grace in it. All the, the qualities of Christianity. See, there is no other religion that carries those qualities as high as Christianity does. That's why we're not a religion. We're not trying to reach God. God's reached down to us. Faith, love, and grace. See, there's no grace in any other religion. We're all, they're all working to try to make some God, whoever that might be, happy. And in Hinduism, they got 330 million gods. So who are they making happy? I don't know. But we know who we're making happy, and we know who we make happy by believing in Jesus Christ. Love, faith, and grace to all those who are following Jesus, he greets them with. And see, cooperation yields much fellowship. It yields unity. It yields community across these churches that are in Paul's care. Paul insists on it. Every book, every letter he writes just about insists on something that will help the church unify for the gospel ministry. And it also makes possible the fast, steady, and expansive ministry of the gospel all over the world. I mean, it's the perfect time for the gospel to show up. The Roman road system was one of the best road systems before our interstate system ever happened. I mean, they, you could, and it was a common language, Greek. So that the gospel could spread pretty easy. There wasn't immigration problems. There wasn't borders to cross necessarily and have to convince someone to let you in. There wasn't passports and visas and all that. It was, a, it was open because of the Roman Empire, which isn't, we think isn't a good thing, but it made it easy to share about our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the essence of what Jesus came to do and what he left us here for. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We call it the Great Commission passage. There are several in the, in the Bible that say this, but this one's the one that's the most extensive. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We may not be at the end of the age, but we're getting closer. Jesus is still with us, regardless of what the world says. We need to never forget this. this that is the church's mission statement. I know that there's this big push to have a mission statement for your church, but I'm telling you, that is our mission statement. And if it doesn't tie back to this, if you say, put some little cute phrase out there, and it doesn't point back to that set of verses, we may have missed the ball. Mission accomplishment always requires people to cooperate. It's impossible to do it alone. It really is. And the Southern Baptist Convention was founded on that very principle, to cooperate as churches, to pool our resources so that we can push the gospel out to the world. In 1845, this convention was created, and we used this principle to fund, facilitate, and focus on gospel advancement. That's what the Southern Baptist Convention does. And I'm not here to try to convince you that the Southern Baptist is the best denomination. That's not the point of this. But the fact is that we don't leave a people group out. I want to show you a people group now on a little short video. A people group that you may not even think is a people group. But I want you to watch this video and see this people group. Mm -hmm. 
Joseph had never seen the name of Jesus. As a deaf student, he needed to see the word, not just read it. 72 million culturally deaf have almost no access to scripture in their hard language. Our missionaries teach local believers visual scripture. Now, Joseph passionately shares the gospel in his regional sign language. Your generosity provides missionary presence among the least evangelized. You ever think of the deaf? Joseph had never seen the Excellent. name of Jesus. As a deaf student. You ever seen, thought about the deaf people as a people group? People group is defined usually by linguistic differences, some language. And there are over 11,000 language people groups in the world. The deaf have their own language. And every nation has their own sign language. And that guy is getting to sign for his fellow deaf countrymen in his heart language, if you will. It's amazing what the gospel, cooperating for the gospel will do. Cooperation makes that possible. From the 45,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, we pool our stuff through the cooperative program and provide an opportunity for a deaf guy who knows Jesus to be able to share it with his fellow deaf people. But cooperation is not just for global missions. It is for that, but it is not just for that. We're to be an impact right here, right here in this little bitty community. It's a big community when you start thinking about how many people out there don't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. It's huge. It's huge. We need to get personally involved in that. We don't need to just put money in the plate and in the, in the box. We need to give our time and our effort. Opportunities to meet pressing needs through Benevolence Fund and Ministerial Alliance. That's out there. You can participate in that. The food pantry would love to have help on, on Tuesday afternoons. There's a food pantry in Enduring Freedom Ministries out in uh, Shumway. I think it's in Shumway. Stewartson, whatever. They always are needing help. They got a big ministry out there. From clothing to providing food and meals, but also food pantry. But there's opportunities all over the place. Food, shelter, clothing, transportation. In this town, we meet needs through that, that our ministerial alliance. Pressing needs. And through these kind of things, verbally, we can show the love of Jesus, the hands of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit to change a life. We can show them that. But much more needs to be done than just meeting material needs. Lots of people in this city don't even know who Jesus is or what he's done. It's an amazing thing to be in a town full of nine or ten churches now, and there are people out there in, these, in this city that don't know who Jesus is. It's sad. Lots of people need to know. So we need to find ways to tell them. We need to find ways to start a conversation. Ask them about their spiritual condition. Ask them what they believe. Ask them if they've ever heard of Jesus. You can start with a simple question like, do you know who Jesus is? It may be revealing who, who, what happens. Find ways to get in and get your hands dirty in, in their lives a little bit. Not, not to intervene necessarily. Let Jesus do that. But don't be unfruitful. That's Paul's point. Don't be unfruitful. You bear fruit for God when you share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether they believe it or not, that sharing is bearing fruit. Because that's all we were ever told to do. We were never told to save anybody because we can't. The, 
the, the perfect parable is the parable of the sower. He is throwing seeds. He's not going over and pushing each one in the ground and watering it. He's tossing seeds. Let's just toss some seeds. We don't, we're not called to be soil inspectors either. You don't get to pick which soil you go to. Go to whoever God puts in your life and tell them about Jesus. Ask them about Jesus. Get an opportunity to share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. And God will use it in his time and his way and for his glory. And we can rest in that. And that is being fruitful. That is being a learner of good works. So cooperation. We need to cooperate with God and we need to cooperate with the church to give the world the one thing they all need, Jesus Christ. Every soul out there needs him because every soul is lost until they believe in him. So Paul sums up his letter to Titus with some very clear instruction on cooperation for good and for difficult events. So biblical cooperation is a good ministry. Biblical cooperation is good ministry. That's, that's what we're called to do, work together. And we must always be seeking to work together, okay? We must also expand our cooperation to other churches and agencies and ministries too. We help, we help do that as a church, as a whole. And there's plenty of ministries that need help, not just financial help. They need someone actually feet on the ground, boots on the ground. And if you need help finding some, I can point you to. Just come talk to me. But we need to also personally, individually, as our, as our hearts allow us, let's make sure anything we do carries a gospel flavor to it, a gospel message, an offer of forgiveness from God. That's all the gospel is, is the, the offer of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in this city, there are people out there with little to no knowledge of that opportunity to be forgiven by a a holy, righteous God, a perfect God. We need to tell them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's really all there is. So let's pray for that. Let's take our time of pastoral prayer now and pray and beg God to show us who we need to talk to, who we need to intervene in their lives. There'll be a time, of, let's have a time of silent prayer and then I'll close this out. So let's pray.